0: Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com.
1: Welcome to Recode Media Peter Kafka. That is me. And today I've got two really cool chats with two interesting, compelling journalists. The first one is insider's Kat Denbarge, and it's about a story she wrote last week, it's a blockbuster story, about YouTube star David Dobrik and accusations of sexual assault aimed at some of his associates and him as well. It's been fascinating to watch the blowback from that story. I think part of it's a tribute to Kat's reporting, which seems pretty airtight but also the newfound sensitivity. I guess it's not that newfound, it's a few years now. We've seen from big companies about these kind of accusations and an extraordinary sort of response from big venture capital, which I have not ever seen before. And I'm curious to see whether that sensitivity sticks around. This is part of the landscape now. I'm also curious about the online influencer ecosystem where there's a lot of potential rewards and upside for young people and not a lot of guardrails. And that seems like probably not sustainable. So we'll see. Also talked with Julia Angwin. She's the editor-in-chief of The Markup. That's the really interesting and provocative data-driven investigative site. It's funded in large part by Craig Newmark, Craigslist fame. The last time we talked to Julia was a few years ago, and it's when she had just started The Markup. In fact, The Markup didn't really exist. She had just announced that she was gonna do it. Um, And then subsequently she was fired and then rehired. There was a lot of drama around that. You probably paid some attention to it. And we talked about that story, but I really wanted to talk about her work. She's doing really important uh, work, looking behind the scenes, under the covers, in the black box of of big tech, Um, and even things you don't consider big tech, but are certainly technology enabled. It's all stuff that's out of view, you can't see it. Um, So it's fascinating to talk about how she and her staff are trying to figure out what's in the black box um, and how hard they have to work to show it to you. and I think you will want to read more of it once you're done listening to our conversation. Okay, two good conversations coming your way in one second. Before we get there, just my semi-standard request to tell other people about this podcast. If you like it, if you don't, keep it to yourself. But what are you doing listening to me? Okay, here is me talking to Insider's Cat Denbarge. I'm here with Kat Tambars from Insider, who wrote a blockbuster expose uh, last week that is having repercussions this week about uh, David Dobrik and the influencer world, and um, I want to talk through all of it. Hi, Kat. Welcome.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Whenever I talk about an influencer or a YouTube person, I feel like I keep saying the same thing, which is there's a Rorschach test, which is... There's a big part of our audience who will know who we're talking about and an equally significant portion of our audience who doesn't know who we're talking about. So let's set the stage briefly. Who, Who is David Dobrik and why is he important?
0: David Dobrik is one of the biggest names on YouTube. He started his comedy career on Vine back in around 2016. Um, And so his short form comedy is what made him really popular. Uh, Over the past couple of years on YouTube, he's become one of the most widely followed and widely talked about creators. And his perception is that he's extremely beloved. Um, He's well known for having a large friend group that he films doing a lot of comedic stunts and improv style skits. And he uploads four minute, 20 second vlogs that have been wildly successful, both from a social media standpoint as well as a monetary standpoint.
1: Yeah, my vague sense of him is that he's a goofy guy who enjoys having fun. I've seen a lot of videos of him showing off things he's bought with the money that he's made being a YouTube star, like a crazy mansion that has a funny dispenser that I think soda comes out of it or something. That's my sense of him. Uh, So he's got this posse of people, the Vlog Squad, which I had not heard of until this week, so I feel very old. Um, So tell us what you wrote about last week and why it's important.
0: So over the past few months, uh, former members of the vlog squad friend group that David talked about in his vlogs have come forward to talk about experiences that have been less than positive. Uh, One of the former members described it as being like a cult. Um, Another former member said he was sexually assaulted by one of the members. And in my story, I looked at the perspective of a woman who was a bystander to the vlog squad. She had no idea who David Dobrik was before she entered his life one night. Uh, But she ended up becoming an unpaid extra in one of the vlogs because her friend group responded to just an open ad for women to come and take part in this video. Um, And while she was there that night, she told Insider that Dom Zagladis, one of the members of the vlog squad, ended up providing her and her friends with enough alcohol that she became so drunk she couldn't consent to sex and that he actually raped her that night. And that footage from it was uploaded and portrayed as a consensual threesome in David's vlog.
1: So this all happened a couple years ago. The video went up. I guess it it, it generated a bunch of views and then was taken down when she complained. Um, this is a couple years ago. Why, why are we hearing about it now? Why were you writing about it now?
0: So really, the movement that has kind of erupted around these former Vlog Squad members coming forward and sharing their stories made me interested in digging deeper into what people's experiences were. Um, And this woman has been talking to people in the media, people behind the scenes about what happened to her um, since it did happen. Uh, but she's always wanted to remain anonymous. And so it kind of took a combination of factors to be able to tell her story in an impactful way at Insider.
1: So what you're describing essentially is is date rape um, or a version of that. Um, the woman in, in, um, in the middle of this did not press charges. Um, the video went up. It was taken down. Is there other content like this in David Dobrik's and the Vlog Squad's Uber? is this sort of a one-off?
0: So since the stories come out, A lot more people have come forward with allegations that are similar to this. There have been several people who have posted to TikTok and gone viral over the past week, basically making similar allegations. There are women who have said that they were in extremely similar situations in David's vlog, and people have also been uh, re-uploading and re-examining some of the content in past vlogs that involved these sexual scenarios that people are now wondering, what's the real story here?
1: So there is other sort of stuff that's played. It's there's sexual content. It's played for a joke, and now people are looking at it and going, "Oh, maybe we don't understand what was actually happening here, and maybe some of this um, broke laws." Um, so you you wrote this story last week, generated a lot of attention, um, and then it snowballed, right? So what what has happened to David Dobrik since, or what what what's happened around David Dobrik since your story came out?
0: So right after the story came out. Uh, David uploaded his first sort of apology or at least acknowledgement video and he apologized to one of the former members of the vlog squad who had accused another member of sexual assault. But he didn't specifically acknowledge this story. He just said that he had distanced himself from the member who's actually accused of rape. Um, And that apology didn't go over very well. David uploaded it to a really small YouTube channel of his, and people generally felt that he was trying to excuse himself and refocus the blame elsewhere. So in the days that followed, a lot of the brands that have notably sponsored David actually backed away from him through public statements, Uh, brands like DoorDash and SeatGeek. Have made statements that imply they're not working with David, and they may not work with him in the future, or won't uh, because of what happened. How much? How and much last- does a
1: How much does a, a a DoorDash or someone like that spend to associate themselves with a David Dobrik, someone who's at the very height of the YouTube charts?
0: So. SeatGeek in particular uh, had an extremely lucrative sponsorship with David because they gave him more than five separate Tesla cars to give away on his channel. So definitely some of these brands are spending tens of thousands, even over $100,000 with these types of deals.
1: So they're they're spending money to give him cars that he can give away, and they're paying him above and beyond that, presumably, as well. Yes. So there's a lot of money at stake here. And then separately— He has, uh, David Dobrik had aligned himself with this app called Dispo. Um, Mm -hmm. This is getting a little complicated, but briefly describe what Dispo is.
0: Dispo is an app that David was the face of, and the functionality of the app is that you can take Photos with a filter that resembles a disposable camera. And you have to wait 24 hours before you can see what the photo looks like. It was generally intended to rival Instagram because it's a photo sharing app. So there's a community function and a feed function as well.
1: So it's kind of a back to basic Instagram. It's being promoted by a high profiles a YouTube celebrity. It was a highly sought after venture investment, Spark Capital, a uh, firm based out of Boston and New York, which had been early on Twitter and Tumblr and some other big uh, social apps, won the deal. And then on Sunday night, they did something I've never seen before. They said we're actually out of this deal. Um, we're, did they return the money that they had put in, or are they just saying we're we're not going to touch the app anymore? I'm, I'm I'm unclear, but I've never seen an I've never seen a VC company win a highly sought after deal and then immediately distance themselves from it.
0: Yeah, it was super unprecedented and shocking to see.
1: do we know if they're actually are they are they taking their check back or what what is the what is the the distancing they're doing?
0: They stated that they would be taking whatever steps possible to make sure that they would not profit off of the app in its future. There's less clarity around what will be done with the current investment and any money that they've already made from
1: it. Mm-hmm. So and is there a continued fallout for David Dobrik and, and his circle going on as we're speaking? This is all less than a week old as you and I are talking.
0: Yes. Very late last night, uh, David actually uploaded a second apology video to his main channel. And in that apology, he fully addressed the allegations and took responsibility for creating an environment that allowed this to happen. Um, And when you look at the response to that second video, it is more positive, especially from his fan base. But there is still a much wider discussion about accountability and whether it's enough for him to just come out and make an apology video or if we need to see even more from him and the other group members.
1: And to be clear, in in your story, which is very good, I recommend everyone go read it. um, it, It's not just that a guy he works with has been accused credibly of of raping a woman. Um it's that David Dobrik didn't directly participate in, it, but certainly around it. Um he sort of he made a video using that content. He was he was in the party at the time. It wasn't just that this is something that someone he knows did. He was in and around the situation.
0: Correct. Yes, the accuser flat out stated that David took steps to facilitate the rape. Um, it was at an apartment that's very famous in the vlog squad. The women arrived there under the context that they would be able to meet David. Um, and the actions that took place that night were ultimately intended to be a show, to be a skit for the vlog.
1: We're, again, less than a week into this. But what do you think happens to David Dobrik? I'm not sure that we've seen a version of... Of such a high-profile accusation about such a high-profile person pop up, at least in the influencer universe before?
0: Yeah, the only thing that I can compare it to, at least at this stage, is the Logan Paul scandal when he filmed a dead body and uploaded that footage to YouTube and there was massive public backlash and condemnation. And in that case, um, Logan Paul's channel was demonetized for a month. Uh, YouTube has yet to make any sort of statement about the David Mm -hmm. Dobrik situation, but it seems unlikely that they will remain silent forever on this issue. So I would definitely expect to see some sort of institutional response um, in terms of the platform that's obviously enabled this entire channel. For David personally, it seems like based on what he uploaded last night, that he does want to take steps to ensure that his content will change radically and that he will have to take some sort of responsibility and accountability for what happened. Um, But the public focus on David right now is still overwhelmingly negative. So it's really unclear how much of his career Uh, We'll be able to progress at the same trajectory and at the same pace that it was in the past.
1: And and remind us, um, again, I think most of our listeners have heard of Logan Paul and more recently Jake Paul, who seems to have eclipsed him. What happened to Logan Paul after this is when he'd gone to Japan and and filmed uh, uh, someone who'd killed themselves and put the video up and kind of laughed about it? What happened to his career after that incident?
0: So what's interesting about Logan Paul is that his career actually grew after that incident. And I think a lot of people have not really reckoned with the fact that the Paul brothers were essentially skyrocketed by that sort of controversy. With David, it's unclear if it'll be the same because Logan and Jake Paul's brand has always been this sort of brash in your face, subversive, kinda, we don't care about the yeah, rules. Yeah, intentionally
1: kind of dumb and broey and David Dobrik is much more um up until recently, I guess, considered good-natured and 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 winning, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. David was, you know, he's a Nickelodeon star. He has Kids' Choice Awards.
1: Big picture. I'm curious what you think about sort of the influencer industry. A lot of young men, a lot of young women. My percep- They have agents and managers and lawyers at this point. There's real money. But it also occurs to me that there's not a lot of infrastructure around them. and And they're going off and making good, bad, dumb, smart, uh, videos on their own without a lot of guardrails. First of all, am I getting that right? Is that what's going on? That's certainly the image they're projecting.
0: Yes, I would say that's the case. It feels a lot like early 2000s Hollywood with tabloid fixtures who were constantly in the public eye, but ultimately there were a lot of repercussions that people are still realizing the full extent of that kind of celebrity.
1: Right, although with the tabloid stuff, right, you could be tabloid famous, but once you came around to making a television show or a movie or something, there's an apparatus around you, there's mm-hmm. people controlling what you create, or at least what what comes out of what you make, um, if, even if they're not controlling what you do on the strip that night. Um, it strikes me that you will have more of these um, unless something builds up around this industry. But on the other hand, it seems like kind of the reason this industry works is because it is relatively unfettered um, because you do have people not really documenting their lives but making stuff that's kind of raw and responsive to the audience. And um, I'm just wondering sort of where you think all of this goes.
0: I think what we're going to see in the coming years is that as a lot of these young stars come of age um, and really start to reckon with what their maturity process looked like in this sort of limelight, there's going to be a lot of repercussions, both for the influencers themselves, who a lot of them are in really exploitative environments. A lot of them are in very toxic circumstances, but also there's the relationship between influencers and their fans, where I think we're really going to see a lot of consequences play out in terms of people grew up with these stars and had parasocial relationships with them. Um, and that the those relationships don't always reflect the reality, um, as I think is really, really clear in this case and in this story.
1: And do you see the platforms, the YouTubes, the Instagrams, the TikToks, you know, they are, they have been struggling almost since they started sort of trying to figure out what they want on the platform how much control if any they want over what goes on the platform they generally sort of respond after the fact when something particularly terrible has gone up but then they'll like the logan paul situation put them in a, a penalty box for a little bit is there anything they can do systemically to sort of shape it up or is this kind of the appeal of the platforms is it anything more or less goes
0: I think when you look at YouTube in particular, it's always been a no holds barred approach. Uh, Very rarely has YouTube made some sort of ethical or moral declarative statement, um, championing what type of content they would like to see from their top creators or putting boundaries on what's acceptable um, or ethical. And I think as a publisher, Um, There's so much content that gets uploaded to YouTube every day that it would be impossible as a platform um, to control and moderate all of it. But I do think that as these incidents continue to happen and as they create so much public backlash, YouTube is going to have to formulate a response of some sort. Uh, just to at least from a public standpoint make it seem like they're attempting to control this type of behavior that is so fueled by the amount of money and exposure that people can get from their platform.
1: So just to be clear, um, up until at least this week, David Dobrik is is someone that YouTube championed, right? They loved having him on the platform. I'm assuming they featured him at events, and um, I'm assuming he's got money of those plaques uh, telling you how many millions of viewers he's got. Um First of all, is that is that a, is my assumption correct?
0: Yes. David has been championed as one of YouTube's standout stars. The platform has directly contributed and endorsed his growth and his channel throughout all of the activities uh, that the Vlog Squad participated in, including this night and this video.
1: And any word from YouTube about this? No. Okay. Kat, we're going to leave it here. I imagine the story is not over. We may talk again. Uh, Kat Tambridge, nice to meet you. Thanks for coming on. And thanks for your reporting.
0: Thanks so much. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks again to Kat. In a minute, we're going to talk to Julia Angwin. But first, a word from a sponsor. I'm back again with Julia Angwin, who I last talked to in 2018. It was a different time. It was the fall of 2018. You had just announced that you were starting the markup. And then there were some twists and turns. And you weren't at the markup. And now you're back at the markup. And now you guys are doing really interesting stuff. Uh, Welcome, Julia.
2: It's great to be here.
1: Thanks for coming back. Um, I do want to talk about some of the history, but let's just talk about what the markup is today and the kind of work you're doing, because I think our listeners might know about it, but I think not enough people do, so I want to make sure they do.
2: Yeah, I I agree with you. uh, We're a new nonprofit newsroom, and we definitely need more people to know about us. It's hard to... Breakthrough and especially during a pandemic year. So, we launched, uh, we started publishing about a year ago, and we write about the impact of technology on society. And we do it in a kind of unique way. We have a newsroom that is half programmers and half traditional journalists. And so, a lot of our work is really very data driven. And we actually publish most of our data sets and our code, and we get our data reviewed by experts. Um, before publication, which is a little bit unusual in a sort of process modeled on peer review. Um, so you're so doing,
1: ac- doing accountability journalism,
2: mm-hmm.
1: a lot focused on Facebook and tech, but not exclusively right now.
2: Yeah, not exclusively. There's we, we focus on the impact of tech on society. And so, of course, we do a lot of Facebook, Google, et cetera. But actually, there's a lot of tech that people don't know about. For instance, like we wrote a big investigation last year about tenant screening algorithms that landlords use to determine whether to rent an apartment to you that most people don't know exists. It's a big industry and they get it wrong quite a bit.
1: And we've you and I have talked about this before, but I want to I want to underline it for the listeners. Um, people have sort of heard about data journalism, and they usually think about 538. And what you're doing is different than that. I want you to explain in your own words how that differs from what you might have heard about data journalism in the past.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I do feel like sometimes we people might be disappointed if they come to us and they think they're going to get 538 because uh you know 538 did a great job of popularizing the idea of using statistics in journalism. And that's, I think, what I would describe their innovation to be. Well, what we do that is um, different than that, we we do use statistics, but we actually collect original data, um, which is mostly what they're doing is aggregating existing data sets. And so we will go and figure out what data we need to answer a question. Like, for instance, we last year did an investigation of Google. How much does it preference itself in search results? So anyone who's searched on Google has noticed that they... At the top of the search results, there's all these little boxes and widgets that are supposed to be helpful. But if you click on them, many of them go to Google products themselves or back to a new Google search. And so we want to quantify that. So we actually scraped 15,000 search results, ran some analysis, did some statistics, and came out with a finding on that, which is that they you know, give themselves nearly half the page. So um, so that's the difference with our data journalism is that we're committed to collecting original data sets and analyzing them. And so it's not just about using stats.
1: And so for the big tech companies, for Google and Facebook, but I imagine this exists everywhere else, you guys are trying to figure out stuff that is intentionally opaque, Right. Um, Google and Facebook don't allow people to sort of look at their algorithms and and, and look at their, their own data. And so you have to, by default, sort of measure what you can see for the most part. Um, and then, so you, you have a little bit of a conundrum, which is, and we can talk about Facebook in particular, but whenever you're going to produce your work, you're going to say, here's what we looked at from scraping 15,000 sites or whatever it is. And the person you're reporting on, the organization reporting on, will say, well, that's not the full data set. You're really only getting a limited picture here. So, how do you think about sort of the limits of what you can do and sort of the point of even though you're only seeing a portion? Of the the corpus, I think they call it, right in data world. Yes, um, that, that you're convinced that you're 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 seeing a full picture or enough of a picture.
2: Um, I think I go back to an original adage about journalism, which is that we're the first draft of history, right? We're not trying to be the actual everything, the final version, the fully vetted, academic, peer reviewed version. We're trying to be the first draft of what we see. We're truly out there to witness, right? And and in reality, um, journalism has always known that our witnessing is really contingent on where we're standing, <laughs> right? And so no, no witness account is ever a full account. And so I see our data journalism the same way, which is we're doing the best that we can. Um, and these are really opaque mechanisms that like, are designed to be obscure. And I, I would never claim that we have the full picture. All I would say is we have a better picture than anyone else has because no one can see anything.
1: Right. We we are telling you what we can see from our vantage point. We're not seeing everything. It's not a God's eye view. We can't see inside things. But we are standing on this hill, and it's a better view than the rest of you, and so this is what we're telling you what we're seeing.
2: Yeah, and we do quite a bit of work to describe the limitations of our findings. So we have a section, we write detailed methodologies for our data-driven reporting, and there's always a section on limitations, and sometimes that's very extensive, which is like the limitations are we... We don't know X and we don't know Y and we don't know Z. And so that means that our lim- our findings are constrained in all these different ways. And so I think I'd rather just be honest with the reader about our limitations. And I think, in, in you know, I don't want to be a press critic here, but like, you know, journalism hasn't done a great job of that in the past.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And you do a lot of show your work and you can see the underlying data sets. Do people take you up on that? Are people actually um, burrowing into the sort of raw material you provide. I I find in general that when people critique something, they often literally haven't read it. Um, you know, or they read, they read a headline. And so the idea that someone's actually going to take you up and dig into your data set seems almost fantastical. It seems like a, like a good conceptual idea that no one will actually do.
2: I mean, that's a good point. You know, I don't know what a lot is, but our Mm -hmm. our data sets do get downloaded and we do have quite a bit of academic citations. You know, if you look up the markup on Google Scholar, like I think we could get tenure, you know? (laughs) like Mm -hmm. We have have a decent like um, rate, uh, which means somebody has looked at our work, used it, maybe um, reproduced it, maybe just cited it. But um, I think we are contributing to... Um, the advancement of knowledge, you know, and and that's what I, that's the point of releasing the data is to allow it to have a life that contributes to further findings.
1: Um, Let's talk about the Facebook work you're doing, because I think it's um, very interesting and and a good illustration of what you guys are trying to do. So why don't you explain what the split screen project is?
2: Yeah, so we have um, probably the most obscure, um, ambitious attempt we have to just understand an algorithm is this Project Citizen Browser, where we have decided we want to try to understand what is Facebook showing, what is the algorithm showing to different groups of people? So if I'm a white conservative and you're a black liberal, what are we seeing differently, right? And this has been described as the filter bubble, Um But it's never really been seen because, you know, Facebook's a black box. You can't see other people's feeds. You Mm -hmm. see what you see, and then you see the data they allow to be released, which is in their tool that they own called Tangle. and that's about it. And so what we did was we went and built an app called Citizen Browser, and then we paid um, so far more than 2,000 people to install it through a survey research company. So we have a nationally representative panel of people who log into Facebook through our app, and then we observe their feed through that. And we don't know anything about these people other than what they self-identify, which is age, race, gender, geography, political affiliation. We strip out any name, a mention of their name, of their friends' names, anything personal. And the resulting data we analyze. And so we came out with this tool, Split Screen, that really lets you see what does that data look like? So you can see what does the Trump Voters seeing right now versus what are Biden voters seeing right now? So you're creating right your own feeds. panel
1: in the same way that uh, any other pollster or a Nielsen yep. would do. Mm-hmm.
2: But it's unusual because I don't know how many journalism projects have created a panel. And right. so I I feel like um, this is a little bit uncharted territory for us.
1: So you guys have, have now put out a series of stories saying, here, we've looked at what the feed is showing different people about different topics in different times. What have you learned? What surprised you?
2: So we've learned um, a couple of things. One thing that we learned was when we looked at public health announcements um, about vaccine information from state and federal authorities, that those were not being seen by our Black panelists anywhere, at anywhere near the rate that they were seen by um, the other demographics. And so that indicated something that we had heard anecdotally, which is that the Black community is not getting as much of public health messaging. And Facebook was meant to be a way to overcome that. And it doesn't look like from our sample that's working. Now, like we said, we have 2,000 people. Mm -hmm. There's 2.7 billion people on Facebook. So, you know, it could be we just have a sample that isn't seeing that. But it certainly doesn't indicate that, um, that that effort is working right, the way that we thought. So that's one thing. Another thing we found is that Facebook, uh, the kind of promises it has made to Congress, uh, sometimes it doesn't live up to them. So back in October, they promised Congress that they would turn off political group recommendations for the duration of the election and the post-election season. The idea being that um, being pushed into political groups was kind of, um, and their own studies had shown it could be very radicalizing, and so they wanted to sort of chill out during the election period. They renewed that promise in after January 6th. They said, uh, we are still not recommending groups. Mm-hmm. But our data show they never turned them off. They were on the whole time. And there was no way Congress would know that, right? Um, There was no way the public would know that. The only way to know that was a panel because we could see that all of our people were being recommended political groups. And really the people who were being recommended political groups the most were Trump voters. And they were being recommended pretty far-right groups that were many of which were involved in organizing the riots on January 6th. So not only did they not turn off those groups, but they didn't turn off the ones that really led to the harm that they were trying to avoid.
1: When you publish that, and before you publish that, and you go to Facebook and you say, here's what we've found, what's their response?
2: Almost every time their response is, we'll look into it. <laughs> um, or we're checking it out, or, or no comment. And then they kind of wait, and then eventually they do something. You know, Basically, until the day we published, They were recommending these groups, and then that day, all of a sudden, they turned them all off. And so it seems like that's when they realized they had to do something. They later sent a letter to Congress because Congress was like, "Um, Excuse me, you promised to do this. What happened? And they said it was technical difficulties. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they had technical difficulties with turning on political, turning off these recommendations, which I find surprising because these were not really subtle groups. These were like, Candace Owen for president, right? Like, (laughs) um, they were really clearly political.
1: I'm always struck by this. This comes up with Google and YouTube all the time as well, and Twitter to a degree, where you see stuff that clearly is a problem. Um, often it's a clear violation of what the company has said they want on their platform. And it's, you guys are doing this this really uh, intensive work to find it. But often I just see it on my feed or a reporter from BuzzFeed will find something odious on YouTube with a million subscribers. Um, and every time they have some version of that answer saying, well, we can't get to all this stuff and we can't see everything. Um, they're basically saying we're so big that we can't monitor ourselves. Does that, mm. does that sound plausible to you?
2: Well, I mean, do you think that's
1: actually what's happening? And do you think they can do anything about it?
2: Um, well, so I grew up in Silicon Valley and my parents were in the software industry. I spent my weekends, um, honestly, a lot of times going into their QA labs or quality assurance labs and helping test software before it was released. Because back in the old days in Silicon Valley, when you sold software for $60 a pop and it was in a shrink wrapped box, you actually had to make sure that it was. Worked, and putting a like kid <laughs> in a QA lab and having them try to break it was actually a really good way to test it. Um, the reality is nowadays the public is the QA lab, right? They don't. The way that software works is it's constant iteration. Mm-hmm. You know, they embrace failure. They talk about that all the time. The hacker mentality, and you know, there are certain elements of that that are. Are actually good, but the reality is they don't test it, and they test it on us, and then they wait to hear whether it's broken. And so, essentially, you know, sometimes I joke like, "What we are is just their outsourced QA lab." Like that's what we do with the markup. And it's like, "I fish, pay us for it." You know, um, I, I'm not. Asking I have for used that joke many Friday's times. Market. I'll email someone
1: and say, "By the way, here's something broke on your site. Don't worry, I'm not charging you for this QA work." Kind right. of half laugh.
2: So the thing is, these are some of the most most profitable companies on the planet, it's sort of inconceivable to me that they can't afford to do it. It's just that there's no regulatory pressure on them to do it. And the the fact is that lots of industries do a lot of QA, and a lot of it is actually driven by a concern about liability, and they don't have liability, so they're, they're not going to do it. So the incentive isn't there.
1: Do you think that liability issue ever changes, do you think there's a realistic chance of having significant, say, Section 230 reform in the U.S.? I know this is doing political prognostication, which is not your thing, but do you think that that landscape changes where they have, other than having Julia yell at you, that there's real incentive to to change something?
2: I think so. I mean, look, we have more movement in Washington, more bills being proposed, regulating tech, coming from all sides, right? 230 reform, Algorithmic auditing requirements, um, privacy laws, and I'm not like you said. I'm not a polit- political prognosticator, but it does seem like momentum is building. It is actually bipartisan, um, and so something is going to happen. And I think the thing that I feel is, I want policymakers to make the decisions based on the best available evidence. And the truth is, there's not a lot of evidence right now. So, like. For instance, they wouldn't have known that um, political group recommendations weren't, you know, being Mm -hmm. turned off. And so they couldn't demand that they would be turned off. So I see my role as making sure that the regulators who I think are going to make some important decisions have the right information about what's going wrong, right? Because otherwise it's actually, they're, they're making decisions in a vacuum, you know?
1: You know, you're doing all this work. Uh, you're doing it in some ways on behalf of the the U.S. government, maybe other regulators around the world. Seems like maybe you should be a government agency, but instead you're a non <laughs> instead you're a nonprofit um, funded mostly by by Craig Newmark. And we've talked about this when you were getting funded. Um, I think initially it was twenty three million dollars. Twenty million was Craig Newmark's money. Some other folks, um, and we'll, we'll go into the history, but just to so we're clear on what's going on now. It's still a nonprofit. That's still the model. It's free. You're not charging users. You're asking for donations. Am I missing anything?
2: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're philanthropic. Craig is still our biggest funder, but we do have some significant backing from big foundations as well.
1: And do you think that is going to be the model? Do you see that ever changing? Could you imagine selling services, you know, doing sort of bespoke research? Could you see charging me a subscription to read what you're doing? I
2: think We're going to think about a lot of different things, but you know, we do have a pretty strong privacy promise to our readers that we don't collect data about them. We have no cookies, third party cookies on our website. We um, go to enormous efforts not to track and exploit our readers' data. So, one thing I think that is definitely off the table that I want to say is like, we are never going to be in that business because we write largely about the data exploitation mm-hmm. business. And so don't we don't want to be in it. So if when we think about our future, we think about things like maybe the privacy tools that we've had to build to power our own website. Perhaps those we could monetize because we've actually had to build everything from a Twitter embed system, event, RSVP, YouTube, Embed, because like you can't use any sort of basic free tools that are out on the internet because they all have tracking. So So, if I I
1: drop in a YouTube embed in the Vox CMS, it's it's automatically going to engage with their cookies, et cetera.
2: Yeah, exactly. So we've had to build a lot of things like that. So I can see us thinking about those types of things. Um, But we're also really young, you know, so we're going to... one thing at a time. Let's, let's. We just had a year of publishing. We want to get some big investigations. We want to solidify our newsroom, you know, like before we start trying to branch out into a million things.
1: So I've been alluding to this several times. We talked initially when you had just announced you were, you were getting into business. And then not that much longer later, uh, the whole thing blew up. And there was a staff revolt and you were pushed out. Um, and then eventually uh, your co-founders left and you were brought back. Um, and you can read all about it, there's lots of coverage of it. Um, one thing that came up a lot was sort of what is Craig Newmark doing while all this was happening? This, this, this thing that he'd funded, high profile thing imploded, um, and at least publicly it didn't look like he was doing much and it was kind of odd to see someone who put $20 million in a venture sort of letting it sort of dissolve. So what, I'm just curious, what can you tell me about the conversations you were having with Craig Newmark during that on off blow up reconstruction phase?
2: Yeah, I mean, just to put, like, a a few details on it in case somebody Mm -hmm. didn't read all the coverage in the New York Times, um, (laughs) basically my co-founders who I started the markup with uh, banded together and fired me. Most of the staff quit in protest. And um, as far as I know... Craig was pretty shocked by that, right? He is our biggest backer. And so it took him a little while to figure out what was going on and hear both sides of the story from my side and the newsroom and and then my former co-founders. And then he went through a rather deliberate process of trying to figure out what was the best strategy forward for the markup, whether we should continue as a standalone, whether we should try to merge with another newsroom that existed already or, you know, and also what kind of leadership should we have? Um, and so it took a few months and it was really painful and agonizing at the time, but in retrospect, honestly, it was rather speedy. Um, I was fired at the end of April. We reinstated in August. Um, and so um, I wouldn't want to go through it again, but I think he was, a del- he was deliberate about, asking for documentation and what was our business plan going to be and, and this and that. And, and honestly, he hadn't asked for that the first time around. He had really trusted me and my co-founders because my former co-founder had a real business um, experience. And uh, and so he had thought, okay, this is going to be okay. And I totally understand that he then was like, you know what, I'm going to need a little more proof this time.
1: <laughs> so, you know, the, the advantage of having not only a, a, a very wealthy uh, philanthropist, but, um, backing you but sort of an eccentric one like Craig is that you know when he says he's going to be hands off you can reliably trust that he's going to be hands off in retrospect though, would it have been better if he was more engaged from the get-go or do you think that's just not a realistic possibility for him to have been sort of in the weeds with you from launch and then to have seen the problems as they were happening
2: yeah, I don't know. You know, these counterfactual histories are so impossible, right? I mean, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Could it have gone another way?
1: Um, well, how about this? Is he, is he engaging in now that you're up and running again? Is he still engaged with you in the way that he was in that in that middle period? Or is he back to where he was at the beginning saying, all right, ship's right. You guys go do it.
2: You no, know, he's been really um, hands-off. Sort of once we proved to him that we were up and running and stable, he, um, he's really let us run. And he, honestly, for a journalism outfit, a funder who doesn't try to interfere, isn't kind of constantly saying, oh, I want you to write this story, that story, is a dream. So I think that he's a great funder for us. He's, once he got it stabilized, he really stepped back. And so um, for me, from my point of view, it's ideal.
1: I'm curious, it's, you've done a lot of work on Facebook, some on Google. Um, as you're looking at other big data-driven consumer platforms, are there ones that are more challenging just because of the way they're built? Is it harder? Will it be harder for you to assess what TikTok is doing um, just because of the nature of TikTok? I don't know if we'll care about Clubhouse in six months, but in theory, if we did, um, would you be able to do analysis there or the fact that it's transient audio make it you know, nearly impossible for you to do any kind of real analysis?
2: Yeah, I mean, each platform is its own special kind of hell, and it takes a lot of time. It us nine months to build this tool to analyze Facebook. I would love to have a similar tool for each one of the platforms. YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, mm-hmm. <laughs> Telegram, WhatsApp, Clubhouse mm-hmm. maybe. Um, but each one is got special challenges. And the ones that are on the phone only are really difficult, right? The reason we were able to do this Facebook analysis is because we built a desktop app that people log into from their desktop. They still use Facebook on their phone, but building tools for the desktop is so much easier. Uh, Mobile is really difficult. And so I am worried because most social networking is moving more and more to mobile. And so the ability to do this type of analysis is... It just becomes exponentially harder. And so I worry about that because I think that TikTok, for instance, is a wild west. Who knows what's happening there? I'd really like to know more. Um, And so one thing I've been thinking about is like, if we were going to tackle one next, which one would it be? Which is the most important Mm -hmm. one to do? And how hard is it going to (laughs) be?
1: I'm imagining you having to do some sort of setup where you're just having people film their phones. You give them a second phone, and they have to hold their phone up to their phone that has TikTok on it record It seems kind of unwieldy. Um, I mean, and I'm I am sure I'm say sure that, we
2: haven't considered that. Yeah, okay, there we go. <laughs> and I'm sure they
1: are not intentionally trying to create – well, you tell me. I mean – the phone is the phone. that Everyone's going to put something on the phone. Do you think they uh, any of these platforms are intentionally making their stuff obscure and difficult to track? Or do you think it's just the nature of what they're making, is that it's below the surface? Some of them are, below right? the surface?
2: Some of them are definitely trying to make it difficult. But the reality is that the big challenge is the phone. And honestly, the, the thing is that it's kind of a good thing. Apple has built sort of sandboxes around its apps. And so each app can't really leap into them and take, data from another app. Mm-hmm. And so for us to monitor somebody's TikTok, we can't build a phone app that then grabs data from your TikTok app because Apple's put a nice wall there. That's a good privacy feature. It just means that there's not a good way to audit that app.
1: And then when you think about, and you don't, you're don't, you not exclusively doing these consumer apps like you were talking about um, and some work you were doing at the beginning of this podcast, how do you decide between saying, all right, Facebook's huge, it's got huge influence, we should spend all our time on that versus there are algorithms all throughout our life. A lot of them are important. A lot of them we don't know exist. We want to spend time on those, um, which I assume are just as gnarly and hard to figure out. Um, but we'll gnarly gen- actually. We'll, we'll generate <laughs> less, maybe generates less consumer interest, maybe less press attention than a Facebook browser project.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, some of these algorithms are so unsexy, right? Like we launched, our launch story was about Al-State's, um car insurance pricing algorithm. They had developed a, a black box algorithm that was going to charge you, well, that is actually um, charging people based on their willingness to pay rather than their risk. And that's a huge, um, huge deal, right? That impacts Mm -hmm. tens of millions of people. And it's in a regulated industry where, um, the intent of the law is to not allow that to happen, and so um, there are lawsuits and regulator regulatory actions still to this day that are unfolding because of that story. But they don't get that much press, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody really gets super excited. Like Allstate isn't a big clickbait topic, you mm-hmm. know. Um, but those are important, and we will always be doing those. We um, like our mix of stories is. Actually, our big investigations are about 50-50, about 50% tech platforms, 50% these giant um, other things that you don't always think about.
1: Have the platforms ever come to you and said, look, we know you're going to do the work. We don't love it, but let's make this a little easier for you. Here's here. We're going we're gonna to at least get this right, right? You, sometimes you get that version when you're doing an investigation. They'll say, since you're doing this right, we, since you're doing this, we want to make sure you get it right. And then they sort of steer you towards either data sets they like or they're just offering more transparency than they would have if you weren't knocking on their door over and over. Has anyone ever sort of said, "All right, uh, we're no. going to we're going to help." Nope. They're still they're still clinging <laughs> to we're it. we're not
2: really getting invited into the tent No. Over there, and what about the Facebook <laughs>
1: oversight board? If they reached out, they're supposedly independent. Facebook court. Um,
2: no. I mean, I um I Relationships with people who are on the Facebook mm-hmm. oversight board, just from reporting or whatever, but nothing uh, formal. No, and you know the truth is we're not those reporters. Like we're not access reporters. We are not actually interested in like a peek behind the curtain in mm-hmm. general. That's a fine. That's a form of reporting, but it's not our expertise. And access reporting is actually really its own specialty, difficult to do well. Not something I'm great at. Not something that my team is really expertise at. We are a certain kind of reporter. And we're the kind of reporter who shows up at your door, we knock on the door, and we say, hi, here's the data we have about you, please respond. And that's our main relationship with almost every target of our investigation.
1: What do you think? I mean, I'm sure you are following this professionally. Facebook uh, has worked with reporters um, recently in a couple instances. One, uh, there was a big New Yorker piece, and then there was also just recently a technology review piece from MIT um, that were both pretty scathing pieces about internal workings at Facebook, clearly not what Facebook intended to do. What did you think of those two pieces?
2: You know, like I said, this is a genre of reporting that is important. People really want to hear the inside TikTok, who said what to who, Mm -hmm. why did this happen? Because I think ultimately, emotionally, readers are interested in intent, they would like to know, is Facebook actually a malevolent force or is it just a bumbling force? And I think and, that and, people And who do we blame that.
1: within Facebook, And who do right? we blame,
2: right. And I get that. There's a huge narrative pull there. But my personal feeling is that intent doesn't matter in the real world. If you're causing a genocide in Myanmar, I really don't care if you planned to or not. <laughs> it, in the end you did or you didn't, right? And I'm interested in that you did or you didn't part. And so I see our role as answering that question. And that is just a different question. And it requires different types of reporting. And so I think that it's really great that even in the financially straightened circumstances that we have in journalism, that there's enough diversity that readers can get all of those pieces from different places. But I don't think we're going to be the place that's offering that inside access version. We're always going to be the... Did you or didn't you? What did you act what actually happened? Right. Like for instance, our story about vaccines and how those ads aren't being delivered to black readers. Well I'm sure that is no one's intent, right? That is, and so it, to me, it No one at Facebook has
1: said, let's make yeah, sure no that we don't distribute this news. Yeah, no trying to blackball
2: news. them. I'm sure they were trying to do the opposite, but the fact is, like, their algorithm, they themselves don't know what it does, right? I mean, it's worth noting that HUD has a lawsuit against Facebook right now saying that they're supposedly non-targeted algorithm for delivering ads is actually discriminatory, right? It's an open question whether Facebook can deliver ads in a non-discriminatory way at all. And so our story adds a piece of evidence to that very important question. And so that's why I'm saying we're just playing on a different field than those other people. And I think it's important that we know our lane, they know their lane, and I really appreciate their reporting. It helps me think through these issues more, but I'm not as interested in intent as others are.
1: Julia, I appreciate your reporting at the markup. Um, other than suggesting that people go check you out and, and m- maybe take their credit card out and send a donation, anything else they can do to help your work?
2: Um, that's it, just read it and tell people about it because we're new and I don't know that how many people know about us. We're trying to help. Thank you, Peter. We'll
1: boost your numbers. Thank you, Julia, be well.
2: Appreciate it, take care.
1: Thanks again to Julia and thanks again to Kat for chatting with us. Really happy we had both those conversations in one free podcast. Speaking of free, thanks to our sponsors, who let us deliver this podcast to your ears for free. Thanks to Joel and Jelani who edit and produce this show every week. They're great. And you guys are great too. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week.